Hear now God's word from Matthew 14. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Uh, It's a joy to be with you uh, and to get to tag team with my big brother and hero. Um, So I uh, want you to know why I uh, picked this passage. Mainly my wife several months ago told me I should preach on this passage. So being a a decent husband, I listened to her. Uh, I wouldn't say good, but decent. Uh, So um, Several months ago, my wife and I went to church planning assessment. Um, for those of you who know, uh, we've been on staff at IPC uh, for several years now, uh, going on seven years, and we sense uh, the Lord calling us to, to plant. Um, and so we don't know exactly what that's going to look like, um, where exactly that's going to be, and so there's a lot of fear and anxiety, if we're honest, even though there shouldn't be, because we look at the Lord's past provision and we know He's faithful. Uh, and we trust that he'll be faithful in the future, and yet I'm still a broken sinner in need of grace daily. And so there's fear and anxiety and all of that wrapped up. And, and so um, my wife and I are uh, considering, as we were listening to this song by Need to Breathe called Walking on Water, uh, she said, you should preach on that, because that, that struck a chord with just where we are in life right now, honestly. Um, getting out of the boat and following Jesus kind of seems scary sometimes. Um, there's some of you who need to have conversations that are terrifying to you. Uh, some of you need to be reconciled. Um, some of you have got some choices that you're putting off that you probably need to make. Uh, I don't know exactly where you are or what you're facing. But this morning as we look at this passage, as we, as we unpack it, I want you to leave today with this great encouragement. Uh, that Jesus really is good. He's really in control. And that you can trust him no matter what your circumstances tell you. Um, no matter what you face, the face of Jesus shines toward you. Uh, the psalmist in Psalm 83 times says, O oh Lord, cause your face to shine on us that we may be saved. And what I, want you to, what I want you to know is the face of God shines over his people in Jesus. And, uh, and therefore, I don't care what you face. The face of God is toward you, and so all really will be well. 
Um, I struggle to believe that, and if you're like me, you struggle to believe that. And so let's go to the Lord once more and just ask him to be with us as we consider our fears, our failure, and then ultimately our future uh, together through this passage. Let's pray. Lord, we've already said it, but would would you be here? And uh, Lord, would you be our teacher by your spirit? Because these are your words, they're not ours, but you've given them to us. And so um, as you have attached your name and your character and your goodness and your promises to us, it really does belong to us. This is your word, and yet you've given it to us so that we might believe it, that we might take it in, that we might even eat it like holy manna uh, spread around, that we would gather it in and take it and taste and see that you're really good. So Lord... um, All we can do is chop wood, but yours is the fire, so fire fall uh, and burn and and take away what's impure and make us even more like Jesus this morning um, because you're good and because you've promised to do good to your people. Uh, And so, Lord, um, be with us even now, we ask it in your precious name. Amen. So just a quick background. Matthew, I just want you to know this because this is kind of the main theme of this story, Um, Matthew begins his gospel by telling you that his name shall be called Emmanuel. He he wants to recount the story of Israel, God and Israel, and what's going on there. And so he gives you the whole birth narrative, the the genealogy of Jesus, and he ties it all the way back, right, to, to, to Israel, and so it's, it's not a new story, it's, it's, it's going back and saying this is all part of God's one story. And in the very first chapter he says, his, you know, cat's out of the bag, he tells you his name is going to be called Emmanuel, God with us. And do you know how Matthew, remember, think about it for a second, you know how Matthew closes his gospel? Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, Emmanuel. He begins and ends with Emmanuel, God with you, and this, 28 chapters, this chapter, 14, smack dab in the middle, uh, we have this beautiful picture of that, where you have at the very center of the passage, you have God's claim, Jesus' claim, to be with his people. I, it, it is I. I am. And so, as I mentioned before we prayed, I want us to look for a minute at our fears, our failures, and then finally our future. And if you're like me, you can fear your failure and your failure being known and future failures, and you can fear the future, and you can fear almost anything, <laughs> Right? Um, and the reality is, those who fear the Lord have nothing else to fear. And that is not this, woe is me, he's going to get me fear. It's this, oh my goodness, love himself has called me into fellowship and relationship, the creator of the heavens and the earth. What is this storm for the guy who made the storm, who made the wind and the waves? It's this, it's this respect and love, not this woe is me type stuff, but this, oh my goodness, there's grace with him. There's forgiveness with him that he may be feared. I fear running away from him. <laughs> um, and so here's what I want us to see just for a moment. I want us to put ourselves kind of in this story for a second um, because I think that's helpful to get the context. So think about it for a second. Let's just imagine you're a disciple of Jesus. You're kind of following him around. And here's the context. They had just finished this mountaintop experience uh, where Jesus fed the 5,000, the multitude. And you remember how he did it? With a little peasant boy's lunch. Uh, I call it, telling my kids about it, I was kind of like, it's, it's kind of like Jesus takes a happy meal and he fed the entire church. He fed everybody. And everybody had more than they wanted. They had, they had plenty. They had seconds and thirds. And then they took up baskets full of leftovers, 12 baskets full. That's crazy, right? But that just shows you how God can provide. And Jesus is in the business of doing a lot with a little. Certainly you and I don't have enough. But when we come to Jesus, there's enough to share for everybody. There's plenty. 
there's more at the end of that story than at the beginning. And what we're going to see here, uh, I think that's partially the point of this story as well. But they go from that mountaintop experience. And if you notice, when when my brother read the passage, he said that Jesus made them get into the boat. So it was Jesus' idea to get them in the boat. And he told them to go to the cross the other side. And I'll catch you later, right? Um, And then Jesus goes up to the mountain to be by himself to pray. But what does he do? First, he dismisses the crowd. So Matthew doesn't go into great detail here, but John tells us in the same episode, do you remember what the people tried to do with Jesus after he fed them? I mean, after this great miracle, I mean, think about it in the first century, like you don't have a restaurant or a, a you know, um, McDonald's that you can just drive through and spend a couple dollars and get fed. Uh, they were excited that Jesus was meeting their physical needs. Um, and Jesus came to do that. We are body and soul, and he cares about all of us. And certainly your physical needs matter, and they matter to Jesus. They matter to the church. Historically, they have, and they always will. Um, but Jesus came for more than that, more than just physical needs. But here are the people. Jesus is meeting a physical need, and what do they want to do? They want to make him king by force. They're literally wanting to set him up and say, this is our guy. He's going to stomp out the Romans. He's going he's to be our guy. He's going to wear a crown. And certainly Jesus was going to wear a crown, but not that, time, not that type of crown. That's not what he came to do. And so he had to dismiss the crowd because he wasn't going to a throne. He was going to a cross to be lifted up. And so as one commentator pointed out, it was safer for the disciples for Jesus to make them get in the boat and actually go through a storm. It was safer for the disciples to be in that boat than it was for them to stay on land and be tempted with all the other people to take Jesus and make him king by force. It was the will of Jesus, it was the will of God for them to be in this boat and in this storm. And here's the crazy thing, y'all. <laughs> they weren't pulling a Jonah. They did exactly what Jesus told them to do. Right? They're not running away from him. This is not a storm of correction. Like, y'all are doing the wrong thing. Get it in gear. That's not what this is. They are following Jesus. They're doing, they're being obedient. And there's still a storm. And I need this this morning. I need for Jesus to show up and to tell me, <laughs> take heart. That's the first thing he says to the disciples. Take courage, take heart. Now, for the disciples, you need to understand, they were rowing when it got dark. And John's gospel tells us that they were out about three or four miles. So picture this. You get in, it's, it's, you know, the sun is going down. You get in the boat, you start rowing. Matthew tells us it's, it's somewhere between three, uh, 4 and 6 a.m., the fourth watch of the night. So here's the deal. The sun's going down. You start to row. You've only made it three miles, and the sun's about to come up. That, you haven't made a whole lot of progress. And even though you saw Jesus do this great miracle on the mountain, th- this is not that. Great experience, horrible experience. Horrible experience to the point of they look out and they see what they think is a ghost. It's important for us to realize if, if you lived in the first century, there would have been a lot of superstition about the sea. And when you look out and you see a ghost, what you think is a ghost, or you just see something and you think immediately it's a ghost and they cry out in terror and fear, they took that as a bad sign or a bad omen that they're doomed. They literally, these are guys who think it's over. There's, there, this is it. And they cry out in terror. But notice it, the Bible it, twice in this text tells us immediately Jesus, Jesus does something. I love this. Jesus immediately cries out to them. 
They cry out in fear. They're terrified. And Jesus meets their fear with his presence, his power, and his word. Jesus, here's the deal. Take your fear and and your failure and everything else. Take take it and put Jesus next to it and see see which one's bigger. That's what Jesus is doing for them. He, He shows up and he speaks his name and his power and his presence to his people. And so I want to unpack what Jesus said very, very quickly. He says, take heart. That's the first thing he says. My mind goes immediately to a time where if there's ever a time for Jesus just to kind of think like to be selfish, which never happened, but I'm just saying, just think with me for a second. If there's ever a moment for Jesus to say, y'all just leave me alone. Get off my back. Literally just, I'm, he's literally about to go to the cross. Hours before he goes to the cross. You know what Jesus is concerned about? He looks at his friends, he washed their feet, he prepares a meal for them, and he says, in this world you're going to face trouble, but take heart. Same language, same word, take courage, take heart, I've overcome the world. And Jesus hadn't overcome the world yet at that point, but he was promising to, because he went through death and he got up, and he's alive and death isn't. And so here's the point. His word, he was promising them on the front end, you're going to go through trials. You're going to face trouble. But you're not going to be alone in it. And you won't be defeated by it, ultimately, if you're in Christ. That's a good promise. That's a good word. And so Jesus says, take heart, take courage. And I need this this morning because I think if I just follow Jesus, my life should work out. Like, I think if I follow Jesus, my bank account should always be X amount. I should always have enough in savings. I I think if I follow Jesus, my marriage and my children and everything will be peachy, I mean, perfect. I think if I follow Jesus, everybody will like me and everything will be okay. And I'll never get sick. You know, whatever. That's silly, but that's literally, I get mad if I have to wait five minutes in traffic. Because my agenda is, is more important than anybody else's, right? Jesus promises you and me and his disciples that in this world you will face trouble. You will face tribulation. You'll go through the storms and it'll be God's will that you actually go through them. But take heart. Take heart. Take courage. I need gospel realistic expectations to know that I am going to face trouble and trials. That I will not escape my own brokenness and I will not escape the brokenness in this world but Jesus was broken for me and he mends broken things. And so I'm not alone in the brokenness. And so I can take heart. I can take courage. And so can you. And I feel you in the midst of a transition. I I was at IPC when Richie left just a few years back and we were two years of transition. And then Sean comes in and transition there. And then I'm transitioning out uh, to go plant a church, something I know nothing how to do. I mean, Jesus is the only real church planner. Um, he, he builds his church, but he uses sinful people like us. But I just go into all that to say, like, I, I know what it's like to go through a transition and not to know what, like, how's this thing going to shake out? Right? How's this going to go? Take heart, Grace Community. Because <laughs> Jesus, he is telling you that he's with you. And he's proving it to his disciples here. The second thing he says, though, which is just as good, if not better, is he says, it is I. And this is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew call from the bush to Moses, I am. Uh, my little brother is kind of a, um, a Hebrew nerd, and I, I say that with much affection and warmth. He is much smarter than I am. 
And uh, he, he translates every time he sees, when Lord is in all caps in your Bible, um, that's not just the, the, you know, the lowercase Lord or Master, it's, it's the covenant name of God, which he revealed to his people. And it, and it, and it means I am Yahweh. Um, it also can be translated he is, right? He doesn't just exist, he is existence, and everything exists because of him. He is reality, right? He is. Uh, I am. Only God can say I am. And that's what Jesus says right here. Ego a me, I am. It is I, uh, we say, but he is saying, take heart, I am. And let me just tell you for a second. <laughs> the God who declared war on all the false gods of Egypt with all those plagues, turning the Nile, they worshiped, the Egyptians worshiped everything that moved, <laughs> including the, the, the Nile River, and he turns it to blood, including the sun, and there's darkness. You can't even see the sun. And, Mo, and, and Pharaoh, is supposed to be the incarnation of the sun god, Amun-Ra. And, and Moses stands before him and can't see his face. You, think, you, you see what God's doing. God's saying, really? You're going to worship that? And, and he declares war on every god, every false god that the Egyptians uh, worship. And finally, he gets to the point of rescuing his people by parting the Red Sea. And his people go through on, on dry land. That same God, I am, who did all that, to show his people that he hears their cry and he has compassion and he moves and he acts and he comes down to rescue. What did he tell Moses in the burning bush? I am the God who hears, who sees, and who acts on behalf of my people. That same God is standing above the wind and the waves right now and declaring his same presence and power to his people. And so he says, not just take heart, not just I am, but he says, do not fear. Aren't we a fearful people? That's why the Bible's most frequent command is do not fear. And how can Jesus say, do not fear? Think about it. Because every reason you have to fear, where is it? It's under his feet. I love this about Jesus. He doesn't have to go around evil and darkness and brokenness and injustice. He doesn't have to go around sin. He doesn't have to go around storms. He goes through them. He, they don't mess with him. They can't. He stands above it, and he goes through it to get to his people. Now, I don't know if you fly a lot, but Sarah Tyson and I just went on a trip. And I can tell you this, I look at the, every time we hit a little, they call it rough air now, they don't even call it turbulence. It's just rough air. I'm like, whatever, it's turbulence. And as you're flying, um, my, this is my go-to. I, I like to act like a macho guy, like I'm tough. I'm not. My wife knows this. I'm a sissy. I'm I'm terrified. I, we're flying in this huge machine that I don't know who made it, and I don't know who's keeping it up, but we're going really fast. And I don't have, I don't, best I know, I don't have a parachute. And I'm literally thinking, like, this could be it. And we hit every rough patch, and I, I want to see the stewardess. I want to see the flight attendant. I want to see them calm. Like, if they're panicking, if they're sweating and putting on, like, pasting a, a fake smile, deep down in my heart, I'm crying. Like, I'm, I'm like, I'm crying out. No matter what the surface tells you, I'm sweating and I'm, I'm scared. But if the flight attendant is cool, calm, and collected, and they're kind of, they're walking through the, you know, the rough patch, then I'm, okay, I feel better, right? And here's, what I, I, here's why I tell you that. Jesus is not concerned about the storm. Jesus is standing over it. He's not looking at the storm. He's looking at Peter. He's looking at his people. Jesus is not sweating the storm. Jesus is not concerned for the storm. He's concerned for you. He's calm. And notice what happens. He says, do not fear. Earlier, just a few chapters earlier, Jesus does this for his disciples again. 
I love the disciples because they're just like me. They're so stupid. Kids, don't use that word um, unless you're saying it about yourself and that Jesus redeems that. Let me tell you something. The disciples are so slow, just like me, because Jesus had already calmed the storm. Remember they woke him up? Don't you care that we're perishing? Um, Yeah, the whole reason he's in the boat in the first place, born of the Virgin Mary, suffering. Like the whole reason he's there in the first place because he cared that you were perishing, right? But they doubt it. They don't know what's going on. He stands up and he says, shh. He calms the wind and the waves with his voice. He says, "Be, be still or be quiet. And the wind and the waves, they calm. Complete calm. And the disciples' response then was, who is this? Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Now they get a little closer to answering that question. They actually nail it. They say, truly, this is the Son of God. Because this time, they get back in the boat, and Jesus doesn't even say anything. He doesn't have to. And everything goes quiet and calm. The wind ceases. It's as if when, when the disciples bow, they get down on the boat, they say, truly, this is the Son of God, and they bow and worship. It's as if the wind and the waves do too. Jesus says, don't fear, because I'm here. But let me tell you, when it comes to our failure, our second point, I want you to know that your fear and your failure together, they don't define you. Uh, what we read in our assurance of pardon, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that, that he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteous of God. Uh, there's another one in, in Romans 8, 1, that there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Look, I struggle. I'm a paid Christian <laughs> in the sense that I get to preach, right? I, I should, if anybody should be good at this stuff, I should be. Nope. I struggle to believe, literally, that all my fear and my failure, that it, it does not define me, but that Jesus defines me. That he actually, the word of God, gets the last word on me. I fail to believe that. But my failure and my fear, they don't define me. Jesus does. And the same is true for you. I don't know if you've seen online uh, Fail Army or Epic Fail. There's, there's an entire channel on my television that is, uh, that is dedicated to watching people fail. I don't know if you've seen this. Uh, but it's kind of like America's Funniest Home Videos, except it's, it's just people falling or, try, or, or filming something they think is film-worthy and then massively, epically failing. Uh, my favorite was dangerous and crazy, but a guy got up on a ladder with a chainsaw and was trying to cut something down and ends up slipping. Thankfully, the chainsaw falls on the ground, but he falls into a pool, which makes me think it might have been staged. I have no idea, but I was laughing out loud. I was belly laughing, um, and thankful on one level the guy didn't get hurt. But literally, I, I can spend hours laughing at other people's failures, and I can see, I'm pretty good at this, I can see other people's failures pretty easily. Right? I, can, I can look at the speck in your eye and get it quick. And, and, and I often fail to see the board, the plank in my own eye. And so I want to ask you this morning, Christian, what, what is it that you do with your failure? Or what should, what should we be doing with our failure? I think Peter gives us a wonderful uh, demonstration of what we do with failure. <clears throat> and, and as I look at this congregation, by the way, I mean, I'm just going on a hunch here. I see a bunch of successful people. And um, I want you to know... Um, the way that we typically think about success and the way the Bible talks about success are two different things. And I want to remind you, as I need to be reminded myself, that my success does not save me. My success did not die for me. And ultimately, sometimes my success, right, keeps me from knowing my need and crying out to Jesus for help. But notice here um, (laughs) what Peter does. There's no hiding or blaming Adam and Eve, the first failures, right? There's no hiding and blaming. Uh, There's no being defensive, Uh, (laughs) 
There's no going on the offensive. Peter didn't say, uh, well, all those wimps in the boat, at least I got out. <laughs> like, you know, no, Peter starts to sink and you know what immediately he does? He cries out, Lord, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. I want, I want you to know that um, unless we can acknowledge our failure, Jesus is not really for us. Uh, Jesus only has office hours for the sick. He said, I, I came for the sick. Not the, not the healthy, not the self-righteous, think they got it all together kind of people. I came for the sinner. And that's why he's labeled a friend of sinners. And in Luke's gospel, he doesn't back it up. He doesn't say, no, he's not. He just gives you illustration after illustration and story after story about, yeah, that's exactly who he is. He's a friend of failures. <clears throat> and so just like Peter, we have to cry out. Here's what happened. Peter, and some people throughout church history, they say, well, Peter was being impetuous. He was being, he, he was being arrogant or he was, uh, he, it was above his pay grade. He should have never, people that I love to read and respect think this, okay? They think, oh man, he should have never gotten out of the boat. That, that, was, that, that was beyond his station. He should have not asked to walk on water. Okay, they, that's their prerogative. They can think that, whatever. Um, but typically, if there's like ever a debate, I kind of go back to Charles Spurgeon and I kind of see what he has to say sometimes because I like him. And um, He said that Peter was nearer Jesus when he was sinking than when he was in the boat or than when he was walking on the water. Think about that for a second. And notice, notice this. Peter said, if it's you, that word in Greek can also mean since it's you. We have no idea if it was, if, if in his heart of hearts, he was saying, if it's you, uh, somewhat negatively, like if it's really you, or if he's saying, since it's you positively, since it's you bid me to come. But here's what he's saying to the one who has all authority. He says, can I come? He's asking the one with all authority, bid me to come command. That's um, that's, a, that's a term that generals use uh, with their troops, uh, or the troops use of their general. They say, command me, bid me, tell me what to do. So here's what I think, and here's what other folks uh, throughout church history thought. Peter's not being, I mean, yes, Peter does nothing half-heartedly, right? I love Peter to death because he, he hits home runs or he strikes out big time, right? Um, Peter, Peter is, is kind of like, I like to think of myself like Peter sometimes. Like if, if I ever do anything good, right, it's because of Jesus. But let's be honest, um, we've all failed massively, and we've done a lot to try to either cover up that, that failure. But I love Peter because here's Peter. <laughs> Matthew is the only one who records this story, by the way. And maybe Peter like, paid off the other guys not to record this failure. I doubt that. I doubt that. Um, but we don't know why. But, but here it is. Peter actually does the impossible. Peter walks on the water. Jesus doesn't um, rebuke Peter for asking to come. He tells him to come. So I don't think he did anything wrong at all, personally. Where Peter goes wrong is this. He starts off in faith. He says, command me to come. You have all authority. I'm looking at you. And then the Bible tells us he took his eyes off Jesus, essentially. He, got, he, was, he was afraid. He failed to consider that, that he was walking on water because of Jesus and his strength. And he started to think, this is up to me. And I've got to keep this going. And this wind and this wave stuff is scary. And he starts to sink. But I love this. I love this. I love this. He doesn't try to Michael Phelps it back to the boat. He doesn't try to swim back to the boat. He says, save me. He doesn't try to do anything on his own. He realizes he's sinking and he cries out, save me. And you know what Jesus does? Immediately he grabs him. Now the, the walk out is pretty cool. Don't get me wrong. I think that's fantastic, but I don't care. I want to know what the walk back was like. The walk back 
was Jesus holding on to this boy Peter, and they got back in the boat, and all was well. And here's what I want you to know. There were those on the boat who probably thought, Peter, it's too risky. What are you doing? And you know what Peter probably was thinking? I don't care. If Jesus is there, that's where I got to be. That's what faith is, y'all. Faith can't live apart from Jesus. Faith wants to be where Jesus is. And you don't care how hard it is, how messy it is, how scary it is, whatever. Jesus is there, I'm in. If Jesus is with you, like, what are we worried about, right? And yet, here is Peter jumping out of the boat, trying to get to Jesus, and he doesn't make it all the way, right? He doesn't make it all the way. And, and what I want to encourage you with this morning is this. Um, our salvation, it's not up to us. You can't get all the way to Jesus, but don't worry, he can get to you. And, and aren't you glad that Peter was the one sinking and not Jesus? Jesus didn't start to sink. He is strong enough to save. And, and when, I, when I talk about faith, I want you to hear Jesus. He's not shaming Peter. He do, if it were my brother, older or younger, I would have given him a swirly. Kept him underwater for a minute just to like know how powerful I am. That's why I'd be a poor savior, right? I would just rub it in. I would rub it in because that, that's who I am, right? I would just rub it in. Jesus doesn't rub it in. He says, why are you doubting? I'm right here. The storm of my love is greater than this storm. What are you doubting for? And he says, oh, you have little faith. And what I want you to know is, even little faith saves people. Don't look at your faith this morning, look at Jesus. When you look at Jesus, your faith grows. When you take your eyes off Jesus, your faith goes into the, into the tank. You start to sink. But what do you do when that happens? You just admit that you took your eyes off Jesus and you look back. It's really that simple. When you take your eyes off Jesus, you would confess it and you look back to Jesus. And he's not there giving it to you. He's there to say immediately, come on, I'm with you. He's not angry at you. He is pleased. He's not embarrassed of you. He is glad to be called your brother. He longs to be your savior. And so when you take your eyes off Jesus, just admit it and look back to him. And his arms are open, and he wants to receive you. What if we believe that? If we actually believe that, we could talk openly about our fear and our failure. We could be like, all right, pull down the screen, look at all the stupid stuff I've done, and Jesus nailed it to the cross. And maybe if I was open about it, I wouldn't run back to the dark, stupid places. But I would trust Jesus more. And so what if we as a church, as, a, as the people of God, actually did believe that Jesus won't fail in saving us, that he will never sink, that his word is secure so that we could finally look at our future and not be scared about our future. That's our final point. We've got to land this plane. Um, one of my favorite um, things that the Bible teaches us, as one pastor pointed out, was that <clears throat> the Bible teaches you that whatever is good is going to last it's going to make it into the new heavens and the new earth. It can't be taken from us. Whatever is bad won't last, and even the bad will be turned to good. That whole Romans eight twenty eight that all things work together for good for those who love God and call it according to his purpose. So what is good will last, what is bad won't, and the best is yet to come. That's the guaranteed future that the disciple of Jesus has. And so I need my future, the way I look at it, actually I got to look back, right? The way to look forward for a Christian is to look back. It's to look back, <laughs> at the story of Adam and Eve who messed up and yet God promised them that the seed of the, of the, of the woman would crush the, set, the head of the serpent. And the rest of the Bible is an outworking of that promise. 
So from the very beginning, God has been faithful to move toward his people, to call them out of hiding, out of their failure, and to meet them with all his success in Jesus. The best is yet to come. We have this guaranteed future that Jesus will not fail. So here's what I want to read. I want to read a couple of lines from the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul is not some, uh, you know, barely shaving, fresh out of seminary, glass half full, golden retriever, the world is great kind of guy. I mean, the Apostle Paul, do you know what it's like to be stoned? I don't. He did. Do you know what it's like to be beaten with rods? I don't know what that feels like. I can imagine. But Paul does. Do you know what it's like to be shipwrecked? Do you know what it's like to be hungry? Do you know what it's like to be on the run for your life, for people scheming to kill you? The Apostle Paul knew all of that. So when, when, when we talk about circumstances and what you face, I don't want to make light of any of yours. I, w- I wouldn't pretend to know what you're going through this, this week or this year or what you will face. I don't want to make light of it. Um, and neither does the Apostle Paul, I don't think, wants to make light of your circumstances or your suffering or your trials. But what I want you to see as I read this is I want you to take everything that you'll face or have faced I want you to take all the trials and all the pain and all the suffering and I want you to put it next to Jesus and this guaranteed future because Jesus has promised it. And I want, I want you to see which one stands and which one sinks. Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing for the glory that is to be revealed in us. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. He knows we're weak. We don't know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And we know that all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, what could be against us? Who or what could be against us? Jesus Christ is the one whom died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us even now. So what or who shall separate us from the love of God? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, a sword, any storm, any circumstance? No. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Paul is going to the bank. He's putting all he's got in this, all his eggs in the basket of. You know what? God is good. He's on his throne, and he can't deny himself. And he has attached himself to us in Jesus. And so no matter what I face, the face of God is for me and with me. So I think this might have to cause us to think about, uh, as Christians, like, what is risky? Because I really do want to believe Jesus when he said, it's better to give than to receive. I really do want to believe Jesus when he says, Paul, when he says, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. I want to believe Jesus when he said, if you want to save your life, you're going you're gonna to lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. I want to believe that all that's true, and I want my life to mirror and reflect that I believe that's true. And so again, I get back to Peter who said, this, this is the internal dialogue I think Peter was having. Peter, don't get out of the boat. That's crazy. <laughs> and Peter's like, if Jesus cares, I don't, I don't care. If Jesus cares. Peter's the guy who wrote later, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. So again, I don't know what you're going to face, what you need to face. Some of us need to face some things, maybe even this week, that seem very scary. Like, how do I... It's impo- like, okay, forget walking on water because you're probably not going to do that and probably, I'm probably not going to do that, okay? But do you know what's just as impossible? For me to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength and love my neighbors myself. For me to bear the burdens of other people, impossible. For me to be merciful, love, justice, and mercy. To consider others more important than myself, impossible. Might as well walk on water. Here's the point. If Jesus is alive, and he is, 
And if he's with you, those things actually become possible. You can do the impossible if Jesus, by his spirit, is alive and at work in you. And all you got to do is ask. Literally. Lord, save me. Lord, help me. I cannot love my neighbor as myself. I know that about myself. I can't love my children as myself. I can't love my wife as myself. Forget a neighbor. Forget an enemy. I can't do that. Jesus, help me. Some of us need, I I need desperately to know that there's a now power in the gospel. It wasn't just back then when he got up out of the grave and it's not just when he's coming back. There is a now power in the gospel. Jesus is alive now and he's at work now. And we can tap into the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the Holy Ghost. He's not the stepchild of the Trinity. He is powerful and we need to trust that he is at work and that he is accessible for us and with us. And so all that to say, Where you have taken your eyes off Christ, look back to him and ask for his help and know that you too, by his help and by his help alone, can do the impossible. Jesus likes to share his power with the church so that they can do impossible things. Like be patient, like shut their mouths when they need to shut them. Like encourage other people and build them up when they need to be built up. Like share their resources, like we just heard this morning. What makes you generous is that you believe that God is not withholding but that he delivered his own son for you. And then how will he not also with him freely, graciously give you all things? What makes you generous is that you actually believe God is generous. What makes me generous with my time and effort and and, and treasure is that I actually believe that Jesus himself has treasured me and been generous toward me. So don't, at the end of the day, uh, don't make the mistake of thinking that your fear and your failure will keep you from Jesus. You notice what happened in this story. Jesus goes through the, he left the mountain praying with his father. He left the mountain. He walks through the storm to get to his people. And Jesus actually goes through the storm and gets in the boat with his people. They failed to recognize him. They thought he was a ghost. Peter failed to get all the way to him. But their fear and their failure did not keep Jesus from them. Because Jesus will get his people. And Jesus will get his worship. And that's how the story ends, with Jesus with his people and then bowing down and worshiping him. So in just a minute, I'm going to pray, but in just a minute, we're going to come to the Lord's table. And here, here's the application as we come to the Lord's table. I don't know what it is about Jesus that would take Peter. You remember the first time Jesus met Peter? He tells him to throw the net on the other side. They catch all these fish. And Peter says, get away from me, Lord. I'm a failure. Well, he said I'm a sinner, but I'm a failure is what he meant. The first time Peter ever met Jesus, he said, get away, because he knew he was a failure. Fast forward to John chapter 21, and John gives us a glimpse. You remember what happened after Peter uh, denied Jesus three times? His most epic fail ever, recorded for all of us to see? Same thing happens. Jesus tells them to cast the net on the other side. John tells us they catch 153 fish. Don't know why that's important, but I'm glad, it, I'm glad he told us that detail. There's 150. They start pulling in the fish, and John says, it's the Lord. And you know what Peter's response was? Peter goes overboard again. Peter grabs his coat, swan dives in, and he swims 100 yards to get to Jesus. After his most epic fail. First failure, get away from me. Last failure that we know of recounted, big time failure, He has to be where Jesus is again. Why? Because as he got to know Jesus, he realized Jesus only welcomes failures. 
Jesus only welcomes failures. And, and the flip side of that, he, he, he only uses failures as trophies of his grace. You see, this guy who is about to like, be one of his main dudes to plant and build the church was a massive failure who, like Paul, could boast in his weaknesses and say, the power of Jesus is made perfect. Because of course I'm a screw-up, but he isn't. Of course I'm a failure, but he isn't. And every reason you have not to celebrate and every reason you have to fear, it's been taken care of. Jesus gives off this aroma of grace that welcomes sinners and welcomes failures. And I want you to know that as his people, it is actually safe for you to confess your fear and your failure. And as his people, we have to make it safe for others to do the same. And people will not stay away from Jesus if they know that he welcomes failures. May God make it so. Let me pray for us. Lord, help us not to run away from you with our fear and our failure, but to call out to you, even as Peter did, so that you might restore us, that you might strengthen us in the middle of our weakness. Lord Jesus, we love you because you first loved us. And we're grateful that you could actually go through our fear and through our failure and that you could conquer it and cause us uh, to stand above our fear and our failure with you. Lord Jesus, we love you. Amen.